pressing down a special key and place a little melody. Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 12 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES, Center. The GES Center works to integrate scientific knowledge and public values shaping the futures of biotechnology. Positioned at the nexus of science and technology, social sciences, and humanities, the center engages in collaborative research, education, and engagement by generating knowledge and fostering balanced and inclusive dialogue around emerging genetic engineering technologies and its products. Learn more by visiting the GES Center website, research.ncsu.edu GES, and follow them on Twitter at GES Center NCSU. Finally, Radio in Vivo is proud to welcome yet another underwriter, Gene Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio in Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. My guest on Radio in Vivo this week is a young scientist who was recently recognized by the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, or CHE, as one of the 20 pioneers under 40 in environmental public health. 
Dr. Kelly Ferguson leads the Perinatal and Early Life Epidemiology Group at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, or NIEHS, which is the only one of the 27 institutes and centers in the National Institutes of Health located here in Research Triangle Park. Kelly also has a secondary appointment in the NIEHS Reproductive and Developmental Biology Laboratory. She received her B.S. in Biopsychology and Cognitive Science from the University of Michigan in 2006, where she went on to the University of Michigan School of Public Health, where she earned her MPH degree in Occupational and Environmental Epidemiology in 2011 and her Ph.D. in Environmental Health Science in 2014. She has been at NIEHS since 2016, where she is a tenure-track investigator. She is researching environmental influences on pregnancy and reproduction in many different forms, which we will explore. She is scheduled to be featured in a webinar sponsored by CHE on March 1st, 2018, in just a week or two, along with NIEHS grantee Dr. Amy Padula. The webinar is entitled Environmental Chemicals and Preterm Birth, Emerging Threats and Priorities. So that, that should be a good one. Kelly, before we take the, the deep dive into your work, I want to start the conversation by getting to know you a little bit more. Uh, tell us about your journey uh, up to this point. What brought you to where you are today uh, here in North Carolina? So as you said, I started my uh, career at the University of Michigan, where I um, got my bachelor's degree in biopsychology and cognitive science. And after that, like most undergrads, I was scrambling to find a job. Um, And I found one in a research lab in Boston, actually in a large animal transplantation lab. Um, And there I learned a lot about um, uh, immunology And I went from there to another research lab at the University of Chicago where I learned a lot more about endocrinology. And in that lab, I was actually studying um, peroxisome proliferator activated receptors or PPARs um, in a uh, in vitro setting. And what was really kind of cool there is um, not not in my lab, but in the lab next door, they were looking at how bisphenol A uh, acted on these cells to increase adipogenesis or development of the fat cells. Um, and I've, I found that really fascinating and that kind of inspired me to apply for toxicology master's programs. And so I ended up at the University of Michigan in the School of Public Health and I was really interested in focusing on toxicology or how chemical exposures um, adversely affect the human body. And um, when I started there, I actually um, got a work-study fellowship with uh, Dr. John Meeker, who is faculty in the Environmental Health Sciences Department there. And I was just doing simple stuff like literature review and um, kind of editing references for his papers and really easy work at the time. But when I was reading through his research, I found it to be really fascinating. And this is kind of different from my interest in toxicology. It was really focusing on how chemical exposures in human populations resulted in adverse health outcomes. So I, um, you know, I kind of was working with him while I was doing my master's. And when I finished, I decided that I would continue working with him in the Ph.D. program. Um, so I, I, um, I primarily focused in um, my dissertation on examining the relationship between phthalate exposure and pregnancy and preterm birth, which we'll talk about more in a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, 
I um, also had the opportunity to explore a lot of the mechanisms by which phthalates may act to cause adverse health outcomes. So this was really fascinating to me and kind of kept me going. And I, um, I did a short one-year postdoc also in the lab of Dr. Meeker. And um, I transitioned to a research faculty position in the School of Public Health at Michigan before I uh, accepted a tenure-track position down here. Wonderful. And I've been here uh, at NIEHS since January of 2016. Okay, very good. Well, I have to ask you, uh, you know, although it's been an unusually cold and snowy winter this year uh, here in North Carolina, how have you found North Carolina compared to your native Michigan? I found the people to be very similar. They're very friendly, and I, I really like the uh, environment and the research triangle because there's so much science going on and um, great opportunities to meet people doing interesting work. I've had the opportunity to um, meet and collaborate with people at the University of North Carolina, but also at Duke and NC State, and that's just been fantastic. Um, as far as the snowy weather goes, I find it very irritating that people here don't shovel their sidewalks. <laughs> um, but other than that, it's, uh, it's been really nice. Yeah, well, at least you know how to drive in this, right? <laughs> Unlike many of our, our peers around here. <laughs> uh, well, Kelly, how did you arrive at the, the current focus of your research? I know you've already kind of touched on this, but your focus uh, these days is perinatal and early life epidemiology within the context of environmental health. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a big topic. How, how did you get there and, and uh, what kind of methods are you using to pursue that? So I, I really got, um, I kind of had an interest in the chemical exposures before I even started in grad school. As I said, I was interested in the effects of bisphenol A in the laboratories that I worked in beforehand. But as I went through my training and I was learning about um, different kinds of chemicals, um, you know, kind of the classic pollutants like lead and air pollutants and um, persistent pesticides like um, DDE, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I, I became a little bit more interested in the chemicals that we're exposed to on a more regular basis that are not necessarily at very high levels, um, but that we come into contact with all day, every day. Sure. Um, so that got that really kind of um, piqued my interest. And um, in terms of focusing on perinatal and early life epidemiology, I found this window to be um, really interesting to me because it's so dynamic. It's such an important period of development for, um, for humans. And also um, it's a really important period um, that can influence the health of the mother later in her life. Um, so I, I was kind of... Um, particularly interested in how dynamic that window is. I see. Very good. So what kind of, what kind of methods do you use to, to explore some of these things, con conducting your epidemiological research uh, on pregnant women and babies? Uh, does that involve inherent challenges? Um, yes, it can. So one of the challenges is cost. Um, measuring chemicals, um, kind of the gold standard for measuring things that I study, like phthalates and phenols, um, is measuring concentrations of biomarkers in urine samples. Mm -hmm. um, and those can be, you know, those can co cost upwards of $150 a sample. So that can be a really challenging part. And um, 
Another issue with studying these chemicals is that levels change in the body quickly over time. They're not accumulating in fat or anything like that. And so basically what you measure in urine reflects what you've been exposed to over the last 24 to 48 hours. Um, so if you're studying a window like pregnancy, you may have to measure concentrations of these chemicals at multiple time points in order to get a more stable estimate of how much the woman is exposed to over the course of gestation. Um, so that can be a challenge, and the way that we go about addressing this, this issue is to perform case control studies. So um, for example, the study I, I did looking at phthalate exposure in relation to preterm birth, we performed a nested case control study. So we had um, a large population of women who had been recruited early in pregnancy and had provided urine samples at multiple time points during gestation. And we went back and we took samples from the women who had a preterm birth and analyzed those for phthalates and then took a small subset of the women who didn't deliver preterm. So we were able to um, more cost-effectively measure the concentrations of the chemicals in those who delivered preterm and those who didn't and then compare the two groups. And those those are the case versus controls, right? Exactly, okay. yeah. Um, well, you know, much of what we will talk about today, Kelly, relates to a concept that has recently received a great deal of attention, that being the developmental origins of health and disease, or DOHAD hypothesis. Would you familiarize us with, with that idea so we can have kind of a baseline going forward? Sure, I'd be happy to. And this is actually um, one of the additional reasons that I got interested in the window of um, pregnancy in my research, and it's because it's it's a, um, a really fascinating idea that um, what's going on while you're uh, in utero during pregnancy can affect your health later in life. Um, and this hypothesis um, comes from David Barker and some of his early work that showed that um, being born small, so lower birth weight, was associated with poor health outcomes later in life, particularly cardiovascular disease and adverse metabolic health outcomes like diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, so. We don't really know exactly why those health outcomes occur, and um, part of the hypothesis is that epigenetic changes, so changes to your DNA that are modifiable in pregnancy, um, can cause these later life health outcomes, but it actually really importantly represents um, a potential target for environmental exposures during gestation. So that's kind of the basis of the hypothesis. Yeah, I see. Well, well explained. Thank you. Well, one of your major projects thus far uh, has stemmed from your and your colleagues' 2013 paper on maternal exposure to uh, a group that you've already already mentioned a couple of times, but these are endocrine-disrupting chemicals called phthalates. Mm -hmm. uh, as Good pronunciation. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's hard to read, but easy to say if you know how. <laughs> uh, it, and use of phthalates as a mediator of preterm birth. First of all, tell us a little bit more about phthalates. Sure. So um, phthalates are chemicals that are used to soften plastics. Um, so they're used in um, vinyl flooring, shower curtains, raincoats, um, and they're also used um, as solvents in personal care products. So things like shampoo, deodorants, perfumes, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so they're chemicals that we come into contact with on a daily basis. So we can um, inhale them um, through the personal care products that we use. Um, they can also be off-gassed from plastic. So if you have vinyl flooring, um, the phthalates aren't uh, chemically bound to that flooring, so they can be released into the air and we can inhale them that way. Um, probably 
probably the biggest route of exposure to phthalates is through um, diet. Um, so uh, plastics that are used in food packaging um, frequently have phthalates and uh, those uh, phthalates can get into the food that you then ingest. Um, let's see, there's probably... Uh, what about dermal? Dermal absorption is the third one that's really important, and that's primarily for the personal care products. I see. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, these, these chemicals are really ubiquitous, you know, and I, I apologize for giving you a plastic bot water bottle now. <laughs> <laughs> Seems inappropriate. <laughs> it's okay. The, theoretically, they shouldn't have uh, too much phthalates in them, but um, the problem is when you recycle plastics, then you end up with a lot of different chemicals so they they could be there anyway i see well tell us more about the the study i mentioned uh, which was published in the journal jama pediatrics mm -hmm. yeah so in that study um as i said we looked at a case control study of preterm birth so we had um, 130 cases of women who delivered preterm and about 350 women who did not mm -hmm. um and we looked at concentrations of urinary phthalate metabolites, so kind of what's excreted from the body, which gives you an estimate of exposure through all of those pathways, so through inhalation, um, ingestion, and also through dermal absorption. It kind of is a total metric of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, so we measured phthalates in urine samples that were collected at three time points during pregnancy, so early pregnancy, kind of mid-pregnancy, and later pregnancy, to get a more stable estimate of exposure across gestation. Um, and what we did is we took an average of those levels to get kind of a good idea of how much phthalates each woman was exposed to. And then we compared the concentrations in those women who delivered preterm to those who did not. Um, and what we saw there was that for some of the phthalates, so it's not consistent across all phthalates, but for some of them, we saw that there were higher levels in women who had a preterm birth compared to those who did not. I understand it was, in some, it was two to five times uh, more likely right. that they were going to ha uh, have preterm birth. Yeah, exactly. So w one thing that I, I think was kind of interesting about the study is that um, within those 130 cases of preterm birth, we were able to separate them. So um, women who deliver preterm do so for a lot of different reasons. Sure. You can have us, you know, you go into spontaneous preterm labor, or you can have someone who has growth restriction or preeclampsia who has to have a delivery early just to get the baby out. Mm -hmm. um, so we were able to separate those out, focusing on the women who had a spontaneous delivery, um, which we thought was the more plausible um, route of action for the phthalates. And what we saw there is that women who had a spontaneous preterm birth had much higher levels of phthalates compared to those who had preterm birth for other causes or who didn't have a preterm birth. So that um, odds ratio that you're talking about is for women who are in the um, upper quartile of exposure to one of the phthalates. And we saw that um, women in that highest group had about a five-fold increase in odds of having a spontaneous preterm birth. I see. Yeah. So uh, what appear to be the biological mechanisms uh, involved with this association? I know that's been a focus of your uh, research since that paper was published. Yeah, so um, kind of the uh, classically hypothesized um, routes of action for phthalates have been through endocrine disruption. I think you mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. um, some early work on phthalates has um, shown that exposure in utero results in reduced anogenital distance in male infants and also male rats. And wh what is that? Um, 
It's Feel free. <laughs> <laughs> in a genital distance is a, a really good reflection of exposure to testosterone in utero. So shorter anogenital distance um, means that you have lower level uh, lower levels of testosterone exposure during pregnancy. Um, and I'll let you Google the anogenital distance to <laughs> right. um, figure out exactly where that is. But um, so the early literature showed that this association. Um, indicates that phthalates have anti-androgenic activity, and that's been replicated in several studies. Um, so kind of the first um, route of thinking of how phthalates are acting on pregnancy is to investigate endocrine disruption. So in our study, we looked at um, thyroid hormones, which have also um, been observed to be associated, associated with phthalate levels. Um, and we actually, we, we saw some suggestion of an association between phthalates and thyroid hormone levels during pregnancy, but it wasn't totally evident that it was driving the pretty strong associations that we observed with preterm birth. Mm -hmm. So we went on to investigate some kind of non-classical um, pathways that phthalates could be acting. Um, and one of those is inflammation and oxidative stress. So there's been um, some animal data and some cell data showing that higher levels of phthalates are associated with increases in inflammation. Um, the exact mechanism by which that occurs isn't totally clear, but this association does exist. Um, so we went on to look at the relationship between phthalate exposure and some biomarkers of inflammation and oxidative stress that we measured in blood and urine from these same women. Um, so for inflammation, we measured various cytokines as well as C-reactive protein, which is kind of a blanket marker of inflammation. Mm -hmm. And for oxidative stress, we measured a couple of different markers, um, my favorite of which is 8-isoprostane, which is an indicator of lipid peroxidation. And while we didn't see too much with the inflammation markers, maybe some suggestive associations here and there, we saw very strong increases in both of the oxidative stress markers that we measured. So this kind of highlighted for us that oxidative stress might be a really important pathway um, by which phthalates are acting on adverse reproductive outcomes and particularly on preterm birth. Sure. Now, for those who may not be familiar, define oxidative stress for sure. us. Sure. So oxidative stress is the imbalance between reactive oxygen species in a system and your antioxidant capacity. So reactive oxygen species can be generated through a lot of different ways. You can generate them by exercising, um, through radiation, um, through chemical exposures, and then you have antioxidant capacity um, from the antioxidants that you um, take into your body through food. Um, so if you have an imbalance in that, then you have higher levels of reactive oxygen species and lower levels of antioxidant capacity, and this creates damage in the body. So it can cause damage to DNA, it can cause damage to your lipids, um, and damage to your proteins. So we measured oxidative stress by looking at damage to um, protein, sorry, not to proteins, to lipids and to DNA. I see. Mm -hmm. Well, as I recall, uh, the, the, the bottom line with oxidative stress is eat your broccoli. <laughs> yeah, there, there's not a, a, a whole lot of data to show that, um, you know, specific antioxidant intake either by pills or by food groups is associated with lower oxidative stress. There, there is some data out there, but it's not totally convincing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in there. Uh, and not that I'm saying you shouldn't eat broccoli. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do you go about measuring uh, oxidative stress? Um, so we do that by looking at this, um, I'll, I'll talk specifically at 8-isoprostane, which is a biomarker of lipid peroxidation. Um, so it's a product of um, arachidonic acid. And um, we're able to measure that in urine samples um, using mass spectrometry. 
I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, are, are timing and duration of exposures taken into account? Um, yes. So we have, um, I talked a little bit about the, um, the phthalates and how those are metabolized quickly in the human mm-hmm. body. Isoprostane is um, a pretty rapid response to exposure. Um, so we would expect that levels that we measure at the same time as the phthalates to actually reflect um, the association with phthalates over the last day or two. I see, because mm-hmm. I, know, I know that's a, an important consideration, mm-hmm. especially in epidemiological studies. Yeah, there are some markers that are more reflective of your longer-term exposure to things, and, um, but for adisoprostane, it should reflect what's going on recently. I see, very mm-hmm. good. Well, how are you able to, in a situation like this, how are you able to control for what must be a large number of potentially confounding variables? So... I guess the <laughs> the best answer to that is that we do our best. Okay. Um, we think we think about all of the potential factors that could be related to phthalate exposure and also could be related to preterm birth or to oxidative stress. So um, a good example is race. Um, black women tend to have higher levels of exposure to phthalates, and they also tend to have higher rates of preterm birth. Um, so we look at that factor and we adjust for it in our analysis so that we can say that the association isn't just due to that um, correlation. Mm-hmm. But um, so basically, we come up with a list of things that we know to be associated with one or both exposures, in our, and we do our best to quantify them. Um, one thing that we weren't able to quantify in our analysis was diet. Um, so phthalates are associated with higher caloric intake, and um, there seem to be some associations between dietary exposures and preterm birth. So we weren't able to adjust for that. I see. And these findings, uh, how do they correlate with uh, studies that have been carried out in experimental animals and cell lines? So as far as animals go, um, there is not a good animal model for looking at preterm birth, um, unfortunately. And in order to get rodents to deliver preterm, you have to give them um, a really high dose of um, lipopolysaccharide or you have to have a genetic mutation. So investigating how a chemical exposure relates to preterm birth in that kind of model isn't really going to work. Um, However, there, um, there is some data showing this relationship between phthalate exposure and oxidative stress in cell lines. Um, and that's also something that we're trying to replicate in animal models right now. I see. And so that, that those are lines of research that you're actively pursuing. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Well, Kelly, there are apparently other biological mechanisms of action uh, or, or even combinations of mechanisms at work when it comes to preterm births and other adverse pregnancy and birth outcomes, uh, such as low fetal weight, uh, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, tell us about some of the other elements you've looked at beyond oxidative stress. Sure. So um, uh, in terms of looking at other adverse pregnancy outcomes um, besides preterm birth, we've looked at Um, the relationship between phthalate exposure and pregnancy and preeclampsia, which is a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. It's um, a little bit more rare than preterm birth, but it's um, still very dangerous for the um, the baby and the mom. And we didn't observe as strong of associations with preeclampsia as we saw with prematurity. Um, We also looked at the relationship between 
phthalate exposure and fetal growth in this study population. Um, and we were able to do that by not just looking at um, birth weight at delivery, but by looking at the relationship with repeated measures of fetal growth assessed by ultrasound during gestation. Um, so this gives us a much um, better indicator of what's going on during pregnancy than rather than just looking at what's happening at delivery. Um, and we saw inverse associations between exposure to phthalates and size of the fetus and baby. Um, so that was kind of suggestive evidence. Um, the problem with looking at fetal growth is that there are a lot of deviations in size of the baby that occur naturally. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really hard to distinguish what is actually pathologic and what is actually normal. Um, so that's actually a future research direction that I'm interested in exploring is trying to um, better characterize growth restriction at delivery and look at the relationship with phthalates. I see. It, it seems like that would, would have been something somebody would have been already been pursuing. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it gives, gives you a chance for a new direction. Yeah. Um, one thing I was curious about as I was going through uh, your work the, the exposures that you look at, do they seem to also have adverse effects on lactation? Um, so that's an interesting question. Um, it, it's really difficult to assess. So there, there have been some newer studies. There's a lot of different um, adverse reproductive endpoints that people who study environmental chemicals look at. And one of them is um, duration of lactation. There's kind of this hypothesis that some chemicals that are endocrine disruptors could interfere with the ability to produce milk um, and thus um, shorten the duration of lactation. Um, that's really particularly difficult to study with phthalate exposure because the window when we think um, the exposure might be important is really hard to get at when we have these chemical markers that are highly variable over time. Um, so I don't think, I think that I think that um, the the verdict is still out on that question. There is some, there is some data from um, other chemical exposures that are more persistent um, and um, are more uh, are better character characterized by a measurement at one time point during pregnancy. Um, there is some data showing that um, chemicals like perfluorinated compounds um, are associated with reduced duration of lactation. Um, I actually have a, um, a paper that I'm working on right now that doesn't find the same thing that these other studies have found. So that there could be something going on there with levels of exposure that are um, that differ and you know maybe higher levels are causing a reduced duration of lactation and lower levels do not. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's something that's really, lactation is really difficult to study because um, there are a lot of reasons why women um, cease breastfeeding and they might not necessarily just be due to low supply or you know the, the reasons why we think, um, the reasons that we think might be linked to chemical exposure. Well, you've, you've discussed about duration of breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the chemical composition of the milk itself? Oh, yeah. There is, a, there is evidence that um, uh, phthalates and other, other environmental contaminants can make their way into breast milk. So that's a, an important route of exposure for newborns. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you also, Kelly, what uh, later in life diseases are, are suspected to have these types of early life or perinatal exposures at their their roots um so there have been a lot of things that have been investigated in the in the populations that we have available right now research has focused on consequences in childhood particularly on 
um, onset of puberty, um, asthma and allergic disease in early childhood, um, metabolic disease and weight gain. Um, so that's been the, the focus so far, just that since we don't have the data to look at, you know, consequences much later in life. I see. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know the early early onset of puberty is certainly a major concern at this point, isn't it? It is. And there, there's been, there was some um, data that came out of Puerto Rico showing that phthalate exposure was associated with um, early onset of um, puberty in girls. Um, it's uh, the, the research that's happened since that study has been um, kind of conflicting, um, but uh, work is still being done to investigate that question. Well, Kelly, beyond phthalates, uh, what are some of the other exposures of concern during pregnancy? Yeah, so um, the most concerning exposures are kind of those that have been studied classically, like um, heavy metals like lead Mm -hmm. um, and um, persistent pesticides like uh, DDT um, that aren't aren't really um, commonly used anymore, um, but we're still, some people still have levels of those things in their system. I am particularly interested in things that are um, kind of more current and occurring on a regular basis in the general population. Um, And those include um, other non-persistent chemicals like phenols. Um, So I mentioned bisphenol. Yeah, so um, phenols are a a class of chemicals that are um, unified by their chemical structure, Um, but it includes things like bisphenol A um, and its replacement bisphenol S, which are used to harden plastics Mm -hmm. um, and also in um, tin cans and other food packaging materials and receipts. Um, It also includes um, dichlorophenols, which are used as pesticides, um, triclosan, which is in um, antiseptic and hand soaps, um, although I think that has been uh, banned now, Um, still present if you have old soap lying around. (laughs) Um, It also includes uh, parabens, um, which are a class of chemicals that are used in cosmetic products. They're antimicrobials. Um, So I'm particularly interested in investigating these chemical exposures, um, particularly because exposure is higher in women um, and um, because we're exposed to them on a regular basis. Um, so some other, other classes of chemicals that are of interest are um, non-persistent pesticides, which are being used more commonly now than the persistent pesticides that they were using decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of chemicals um, that are used in um, flame retardants. Um, so um, orga- organophosphate um, flame retardants are of particular interest right now because those are using to replace being used to replace some of the persistent flame retardants. I see. Very good. Mm -hmm. Well, I I understand that you are also studying the effects of maternal exposures to trace metals. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah. So um, I said that, you know, in terms of thinking about what we should be most concerned with, uh, one of the classic uh, exposures is lead. Um, But Mm -hmm. levels of exposure used to be much higher than they are today. And um, I think it's important um, with research moving forward to investigate lower levels of exposure to these metals and see um, what what do we see with lower levels of exposure. So I'm currently working on a study where we're looking at um, a panel of trace metals, including lead and cadmium and arsenic, um, and trying to see if those are associated with our outcome of preterm birth. And something that's kind of interesting about that study is that we have measured such a large number of metals. So we are looking at um, 14 different metals, and usually most studies that look 
look at the relationship with preterm birth, look at one or two metals in isolation. But of course, we're not exposed to any individual chemical um, in an isolated fashion. It's really more about the mixture. Um, so part of this work is going to be exa to examine how combinations of these metals could potentially exacerbate each other's effects and uh, enhance the outcome. Uh, that's going to be very interesting to see your results on that study. Uh, well, Kelly, what does this new knowledge about exposures and the mechanisms behind preterm births and other adverse birth outcomes tell us in terms of identifying opportunities for intervention? Can we translate your, your work and, and others who are doing similar work into real-world actions? So that that is a really challenging um, aspect of this research because a lot of studies have attempted to reduce exposure to phthalates in women of reproductive age. Um, and that is part of the reason why I started researching phthalates and other non-persistent chemicals, because I have this idea that, you know, while we can actually do something about it, as opposed to these other chemicals, which, you know, like lead, once you have it in your body, it's very difficult to um, change your exposure level. But in theory, you should be able to reduce your exposure to phthalates. Um, but unfortunately, that's, that's not really turning out to be the case. There have been intervention studies that have tried to reduce exposure by implementing a, you know, a whole foods, all fresh diet. Um, and you just never know where the phthalates are going to come from. Um, this paper that was published um, by my colleague found that in an intervention study, women who got the fresh food diet actually ended up with higher levels of phthalate exposure because one of the spices that they were using in the preparation of the foods was highly contaminated with phthalates. Wow. Um, so phthalates can come from a lot of sources that you're not necessarily expecting. Um, there are studies showing that, you know, um, modifying your diet in order to have more fresh foods and have less packaging can reduce your phthalate exposure level, but it's not consistent every time. Um, and the same kind of thing with personal care products. You could go to Whole Foods and buy all of the, you know, shampoos that don't have phthalates in them that you want, but you might not realize that, you know, your dish soap has a lot of phthalates in it or something like that. So um, while we can make some modifications in the attempt to reduce exposure, there's no, there's no um, certainty about it. Well, what about uh, actions coming from the top down in terms of uh, eliminating phthalates as in, an ingredient in, in various mixtures? I'm not really a, a policy person, so to speak, <laughs> okay. but um, I know one problem is that, um, you know, banning things like phthalates in certain products or banning one particular phthalate can often result in replacement with another phthalate that just hasn't been tested. Um, so mm -hmm. this is the case with bisphenol A, um, which is being replaced now with bisphenol S, which has not really been investigated and may potentially have as severe or um, worse health consequences as BPA. Right, mm -hmm. right. So green chemistry may not be the, the entire answer right. in some cases. You are listening to Radio in Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Kelly Ferguson from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Kelly, I'd like to spend some of our remaining time together talking about the placenta. <laughs> uh, it, it's just a fascinating and not well understood uh, so-called temporary organ uh, that is literally the lifeline between mother and fetus. Uh, the placenta has gained a lot more research attention in recent years, uh, not the least being the Human Placenta Project, uh, being sponsored by the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Are you involved with that initiative at all? I 
actually am tangentially involved. <laughs> so I have a, um, a recent research collaboration with an investigator who is directly involved with the Human Placenta Project, um, Dr. Abu Hamid, who is at East Virginia Medical School. And he's conducting a fascinating study, which is um, looking at repeated ultrasound measures of um, placental and child development during pregnancy. And he's using some really interesting, um, innovative ultrasound techniques to look at vascularization of the placenta, um, microcalcifications in the placenta, which could reflect damage, um, and other measures of um, kind of uterine blood flow. Um, and the objective of his study is to try to predict adverse pregnancy outcomes using these ultrasound measures that are being taken early in gestation. Um, and I'm collaborating with him to collect urine samples from these women at the same time points when they're um, doing ultrasound measurements. And the objective of this is to be able to look at um, these non-persistent chemicals like phthalates and phenols and to investigate their association with um, how placental function and um, fetal growth is changing during pregnancy. So any, any results you can share uh, at this early point? Um, the only result I can report is that it's taking a long time to get the subcontract in place. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, very early on. What what type of cohort are you are you using? This is a um, I this is a cohort study. So um, the women are recruited um, when they come into the hospital and. Um, if they participate, they're followed through gestation. So there's um, a selection for um, high-risk pregnancies, so women who have previously had a preterm birth, but that's only for a subset. So um, largely it's population-based, but um, some of the women are, are high-risk. I see. Mm -hmm. So, Kelly, how has our understanding of the role of the placenta in pregnancy and delivery evolved since it has become the focus of more research in recent years? So I think what we're learning is there are many tools that we can use to assess uh, the health of the placenta in vivo. So the real problem with studying it is it's kind of this black box. You can't take a sample of the placenta while a woman is pregnant. Sure. Um, but we're developing a lot more tools to, for example, by ultrasound or by MRI, um, which is another, um, another project funded by the uh, Human Placenta Project. Mm -hmm. um, we can assess you know, characteristics of the size and the blood flow in the placenta, but we can also use some biomarkers to measure um, what's going on in the placenta during pregnancy. There's a lot of research investigating exosomes, which are secreted from the placenta into maternal circulation. Um, and we may be able to um, assess health of the placenta by measuring things in these exosomes. Um, there's also a lot um, more that's being done with the placenta at delivery. Um, so there um, are studies that are going on looking at epigenetic changes, um, microRNAs in the placenta and metabolomics in the placenta to try to characterize um, differences in um, those pregnancies that are healthy and those that are not. And once we're better able to characterize that, then we can potentially go back early in pregnancy and say, what is contributing to those changes and what can we intervene upon? Yeah, absolutely. So do, what, what is your assessment of the progress of that research at this point? Um, I think the Human Placenta Project initiative is relatively new and the data is still coming out of that project. So I think it's uh, in a, um, an important stage where a lot Gestational of data is coming out. Yeah, that, so. yeah. <laughs> I would say it's mid-gestation and okay. the papers will be <laughs> delivered soon. <laughs> Good. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see the, how that progresses 
in terms of widening our knowledge uh, mm-hmm. of that so-called temporary Right, exactly. Organ. And for me, for investigating chemical exposures in relation to pregnancy outcomes, all of these tools will be really useful to um, be able to better characterize what's going on in the placenta and examine how the environment affects that. So it, are, are any uh, placentas uh, post-delivery being directly uh, analyzed uh, for exposure to toxicants? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of studies that look at look at that, um, particularly looking at levels of chemicals that make their way into the placenta, mm-hmm. um, and then looking at changes in the placenta, like epigenetic changes that are related to levels of chemicals in the placenta. So there are those studies going on right now. Okay. Well, widening our focus just a little, uh, Kelly, and I know you've already touched on this, but I'd like to explore it a little further. Um, what practical measures could pregnant women or nursing mothers take to avoid potentially harmful exposures? Uh, well, what do you tell women in your audiences who ask that type of question? It must come up frequently. It comes up frequently with my friends who are pregnant. Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> um, and, and you're y- the expert, so you're <laughs> expected to have the answers. I, the first thing that I always tell them is not to worry. Um, I think that there's a lot of pressure that's being put on women to focus on what to avoid and what to do and what to not do during pregnancy, and it's it can be pretty overwhelming. Um, so I tell them not to stress out too much. We also don't know about the balance between exposure to chemicals and psychological stress. If someone is, you know, overwhelmed by all of these things that they're trying to avoid and, oh my God, this chemical exposure is going to kill me and my baby, you know, that could be much worse potentially than the low level of chemical exposure itself. So I'm actually involved in some research projects now, not investigating how the stress of, uh, knowing what chemicals you're exposed to could affect your pregnancy, but looking at how stress in general could interact with exposure to chemicals in relation to birth outcomes. Um, But most importantly, I tell women not to stress out too much about it. Um, Well, pregnancy is inherently stressful, isn't it? (laughs) It, Yes, it's a very physically stressful time. but I um, then I after I, I give that forewarning, I usually just communicate what I try to do in my daily practice, which is try to use uh, products that don't have phthalates in them. Um, I try not to package thing and pla- pa- package my foods in plastics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, you know, I I try to think about the public health impact of um, you know my behaviors on a day to day basis because it's not so much about what we're doing individually as what's going on in the entire population. Um, and so reducing consumption of plastics and um, you know uh, products that contain phthalates um, can do a lot of good for you know what ends up going into the environment and coming back to us that way. It's uh, interesting the way you uh, answer that question because. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, we were talking off air about uh, one of your uh, mentors, Shauna Swallen, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of the pioneers of this type of research. And I remember uh, interviewing her, like I said, about a decade ago and asking her that very same question. And she she struggled to answer it. <laughs> well, I... You, um, you did well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, you know, that... The research that I do is not focused on an individual level. I'm not a clinician. I'm looking what's happening in the population overall. So, you know, what happens in one woman isn't necessarily comparable to what happens in the next. And it's really about how these chemical exposures overall are affecting women. Sure. Well, what about the role of dads 
in all of this. I, I understand that they're involved too. <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, so there is there is some interesting work going on looking at exposure to phthalates in men and how that affects fertility. Um, but there also may be changes that occur in the sperm um, that are transferable to the baby. So epigenetic changes in the DNA that's in the sperm could potentially influence development of the offspring. Um, so that's kind of a, a new field that um, is is uh, being researched and I think is really interesting and important to consider. It's just um, sometimes it can be really difficult to study the role of the dads in pregnancy outcomes. Indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure there are people out there looking closely at that, though. There are, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I wanted to also be sure to ask you, uh, and you've, d again, touched on it a bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about it, about the role of diet and nutrition. Um, how does that element affect successful pregnancy and delivery? So obviously, um, you know, diet and nutrition is, a, is very important to maintain during gestation. Um, one thing that I think about with diet is, and we kind of touched on this earlier, is um, the relationship with oxidative stress. Um, and that's something that I'm particularly interested in. My research is trying to understand if supplementation with antioxidants, um, you know, vitamin C or um, omega-3 fatty acids can actually change your levels of oxidative stress. Because in this research that I've been working on, we showed that, you know, oxidative stress may be an important mechanism connecting phthalate exposure and preterm birth. And if we can't reduce our phthalate exposure, then changing the levels of oxidative stress may be the next step. Um, so, so that's something that I'm really interested in investigating in more detail is how dietary um, supplements influence these oxidative stress levels. Um, the data from human studies so far has not been very convincing that you can actually um, prevent preterm birth, for example, by taking antioxidants. Mm -hmm. um, there have been several clinical trials that have looked at that, and the evidence is pretty overwhelmingly null. Um, However, I think if we're, you know, in, in my work focusing on this specific biomarker and how levels are changing in response to antioxidant supplementation, we may be able to understand on a more continuous level um, how that supplementation is changing our physiology. Now, you, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that your, your friends often ask you uh, for advice during their pregnancies. Do you have any advice in terms of supplementation? Um, no, I don't. I um, <laughs> I mean, we all know folic acid needs folic to be Folic acid there. is important. I, w I would just tell my friends to listen to their doctor when it comes to supplements. And my friends who aren't pregnant, I say that supplements don't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, Kelly, where, where is your research program going from here? What, what's next on the agenda? So I mentioned uh, a couple things while we were talking. So one thing that I'm really interested in is how exposure to chemicals in combination with psychological stress could exacerbate um, these adverse pregnancy outcomes. So I'm working on um, the TIDE study, which is um, the infant development in the environment study with Dr. Shauna Swan, who's at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. um, and we're working together to look at how um, higher levels of exposure to phthalates in combination with stressful life events that occur during pregnancy relate to um, preterm birth and gestational age at delivery. Um, so the idea here is that women who have higher levels of exposure to phthalates are typically lower socioeconomic status, um, and they may potentially have higher levels of um, occurrences of stressful life events or other stressors during pregnancy. Um, so in that study, I'm, I'm interested in looking at that interaction. 
Um, I'm also interested in trying to better understand this oxidative stress pathway. So we saw a really strong relationship between phthalate exposure and oxidative stress and between oxidative stress and preterm birth and um, mediation of that uh, relationship by oxidative stress. But we just have one biomarker that's reflecting this whole phenomenon and we don't really know what it represents. We have, you know, the textbook definition and we have a lot of papers that have um, assessed what this biomarker means. But what I'm really interested in is trying to better understand what pathways are activated in the human body that lead to higher levels of um, isoprostane. And um, I'm working on that using some kind of innovative techniques to look at um, a panel of metabolomics biomarkers, which is basically a lot of different markers in the system that are indicative of changes in um, pathways that could relate to oxidative stress. Sounds like you got plenty left on the plate. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> even get through all my bullets. <laughs> uh, we'll go, uh, continue, please. No, I, I just wanted to mention one other thing that I'm sure. really interested in, which is um, better understanding the consequences of the, of the environment on fetal growth during pregnancy. So like I mentioned, there's a lot of um, variability in fetal growth that is due to, you know, just being normally and healthily small. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really would like to better understand how chemicals chemical exposures relate to smallness that is pathological in nature. Um, so that's kind of the third piece of my my research direction right now. Well, it, it, again, it sounds like you've got plenty to do. <laughs> well, Kelly, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, one last question about the Life Codes prospective birth cohort. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and I'm glad I mentioned that third bullet because that's a, actually a study that I plan to pursue within Life Codes. So okay. um, Life Codes is the parent cohort from which the preterm birth case control study was selected. And this is an ongoing prospective birth cohort at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And it's um, led by uh, Dr. Thomas McElrath, who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And mm -hmm. it's been going on since 2006. Um, and so I've been working with this study um, intimately to look at the relationship between chemical exposures and preterm birth, as well as um, some of these biological mechanisms of chemical action. Um, but I'm planning to continue working with it moving forward, and I'm hoping to add on some uh, measures to the existing cohort in order to better assess fetal and placental growth in that study population um, to improve our ability to look at the relationship with chemical exposures. Wonderful. Well, Kelly, it's been a fascinating hour. Please keep up the good work, and please give my best to all of my friends and colleagues at NIEHS. And thanks for joining me today on Radio In Vivo. Thank you. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio In Vivo. You can check out the website, radioinvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio En Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough and Chapel Hill. If you enjoy the show, we ask that you support the radio station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.